Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Born July 7, 1938, he was a Reformed Christian theologian, Bible teacher, author, and a speaker known for his writing on the authority of Scripture and the defense of biblical inerrancy. He was the senior minister of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia from 1968 until his death in 2000. Over his lifetime, Dr. Boyce was a prodigious world traveler, having journeyed to more than 30 countries and teaching from the Bible in England, France, Switzerland, Canada, Japan, Australia, Korea, and Saudi Arabia. While pursuing his doctoral studies in Switzerland, he started a Bible study group that eventually developed into the Basel Christians Fellowship. Dr. Boyce received degrees from the Stony Brook School, Harvard University, Princeton Theological Seminary, University of Basel in Switzerland, and from the Theological Seminary of the Reformed Episcopal Church. Today's message from Dr. Boyce is, What I've Learned from John's Gospel. culture and then also in much biblical scholarship to disparage the evidences for Christianity. Traditionally, the evidences for Christianity have consisted not only of the historical evidences, the eyewitness accounts of the things that happened during the lifetime of Christ, but also such things as miracles and prophecy. There's a great tendency to disparage that today, partially as a, as a uh, follow-through on the kind of critical philosophy that we've had in our culture, stemming from Kant and others in Germany. And so when people appeal to the miracles or appeal to prophecy in any supportive way, that's considered almost ignoble. It's interesting that... This was not the case in the lifetime of Christ, nor is it the message of the Bible as a whole. So far as prophecy goes, we're aware that in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, for example, God himself appeals to prophecy as proof that he is God. Nobody else can tell the future, he says, because nobody else can control it. Therefore, if I can tell what's coming, I'm the true God because I determine what comes to pass. We have a Similar case in these verses that we're about to read. Our Lord had been casting out demons, and today people would say, oh, that's nothing. We're almost embarrassed to talk about that. But it's interesting that in this conversation that our Lord had with the leaders of the day, nobody in the opposition, none of his enemies, attempted to argue that he really wasn't casting out the demons. They accepted that as fact, and they recognized from it that our Lord was operating with what was obviously a supernatural power, but because they didn't want to accept his message, because they didn't want to accept his claims, they argued that rather than this being a good power, it was an evil power. It was true that he was casting out demons, but he was doing it by the power of the devil. And our Lord responds, we know his answer to this, that Satan obviously cannot be divided against himself because if he is, his kingdom will crumble. Satan 
if he's doing anything, is trying to overpower the good, not cast out the evil. And it follows from that, since there are only two kinds of supernatural power in the world, that of the demons and Satan and that of God, that if Jesus is not casting out demons by the power of the devil, he must be doing it by the power of God. And therefore, this, among his other miracles, is something that authenticates him. You recall that on one occasion he said, if you don't believe me for the sake of my words, believe me for the very work's sake. That is, believe me because of what I'm able to do. And so we present that challenge today. There's never been anybody like the Lord Jesus Christ able to do what he did, to speak the way he spoke. And we're not embarrassed to refer to these things as evidences for the claims of Christianity. These verses go on to make another point, and we shouldn't miss that. While Jesus spoke of casting out evil spirits, he went on to say not only that that was proof that he is who he claimed to be, but also to remind us that only he is able to do that. Therefore, if we desire moral renewal, spiritual cleansing, power over whatever principle of evil may be found within us, let's turn to him as the one who alone is able to provide that moral reformation and that strength. How? By his presence within us. It takes a better power to drive out a lesser one. It takes a holy power to drive out an evil power. And so moral growth and indeed salvation itself is to be found in no other save Jesus Christ, for there is none other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. And he was casting out a demon, and it was dumb. And it came to pass when the demon was gone out, the dumb spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said he casteth out demons through Beelzebub, the chief of the demons. And others, testing him, sought of him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their hearts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out demons through Beelzebub. If I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. But if I with the finger of God cast out demons, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor in which he trusted and divideth his spoils. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and finding none, he saith, I will return unto my house from which I came out, and when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he, and taketh to him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. And it came to pass, as he spoke these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, Blessed is the womb that bore thee and the breasts which nursed thee. But he said, Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. And God will bless to us this reading of his holy word. I come today to the very end of 
a lengthy exposition of John's Gospel. And as I do, I think of a question that's often asked me. People say, after having spent so many years teaching John's Gospel, how do you find anything new to say? Now, in one sense, I understand the question because having spent roughly eight years in a verse-by-verse, Sunday-by-Sunday exposition of the book, I've certainly covered a great many topics and have delved into a number of peripheral issues. But in another sense, I really don't understand a question like that at all. Because, as is the case with the study of any book of the Bible, the more we get into a careful analysis of the text and a study of the application of the teaching to our lives personally, the more do we have the sense that the Word of God is truly inexhaustible. The author of this book is an infinite God, and therefore we would have the expectation that his word would be truly inexhaustible. I began a study of John years before I came to Tenth Church and began to teach here during the years of my graduate study in Switzerland. During those years, I read virtually every major commentary upon the book and probably hundreds of other peripheral studies of subjects connected with the book. Even now in my study, these commentaries take up several shelves worth of space. I've preached 270 separate sermons in printed manuscript form. This is over 2,000 pages. In typescript, it's 2,700 pages or more, and eventually it's going to occupy five printed volumes. And yet, when I come to the end, to these last two verses, as we do today, I have the feeling that it would be quite possible to go right back to the beginning and do it all over again and learn even more the second time than I did the first time, so infinite is God's Word. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to do that, but this is entirely possible. I think this perspective on John, which has come about as the result of many years of study of this book, has given me a particular insight into the last two verses, because I sense that these last two verses, as they reflect back on what Jesus did and what John, the author, has written, recognize that in a striking way, John has only recorded a part, and we must say a small part, that of all the things that could possibly be written. And yet at the same time, we sense this as we read particularly the last verse, that the author is undoubtedly satisfied, because although he has only written a portion of what could be written, this is nevertheless enough, because God has guided this, and because God has guided it, his blessing has attended upon it, and this word is undoubtedly accomplished and will yet accomplish that which he has sent it into the world to do. This is what the verses say. This is the disciple who testifieth of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true, 
And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. I sense another thing as I come to these last verses, and that is what I would call the perfection or the satisfying wholeness or completion of this book. It begins with Jesus Christ, for example. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It ends with Jesus Christ. There are many other things that Jesus did. It starts in the opening chapter with a magnificent testimony, the testimony of John the Baptist. And this is the testimony of John that he bore concerning Jesus Christ. This is he who was before me. And John goes on to talk about the significance of Christ's person and his work. The book ends with a reference to another significant testimony, this time the testimony of the other John, John the son of Zebedee, saying this is the disciple who testifies of these things, and we know that his testimony is true. There's been some discussion and critical debate about the meaning of that plural, we, in verse 24, we know that his testimony is true. There are some, probably the majority of the conservative scholars are in this category, who take that word we as simply an indirect way of the author referring to himself, sort of an editorial we. There are others, not the majority of conservatives, but including a number of very significant conservative scholars, who sense that here we probably have an indication that the last verses of the gospel are added to it by some official body of Christians who in this means add their testimony to corroborate John's testimony. Now the issue may not be a very big one, but I sense, this is my conviction, that the latter is probably the case. It's not that John could not refer to himself with the word we. We certainly do it, and that occurs other places in the gospel. But John himself doesn't do that anywhere else. It doesn't seem to be his method. Moreover, if John is writing these last verses, then he's identifying himself as the beloved disciple, pointing out that the beloved disciple is the author which is the very thing he seemed reluctant to do elsewhere in the book. He always seems to be very reluctant to identify himself. He prefers to remain anonymous. Moreover, there's a difference here between the way in which this verse refers to the author and the way John seems to refer to himself earlier. If you think back to the 19th chapter, verse 35, where he's describing the presence of of the beloved disciple at the cross witnessing the issue of blood and water from the side of Christ, he does something there which is very parallel to this last verse. He alludes to the beloved disciple's witness and he refers to that witness as being true or reliable. He says, he that saw it bore witness and he knows that his testimony is true. But notice in each case he says he and he, and here in this last verse there seems to be a distinction. We know that his testimony is true. So I point that out simply to say that in my judgment, what we have here in the last verses is a, an official postscript, an official testimony by those of John's circle, perhaps the church, 
among which he served, perhaps an official body of elders or some such thing, who simply say in their own words, here at the very end of the gospel, John was the author, and he wrote these things, and his was a reliable witness. Some will say, perhaps, that that reflects upon the inspiration of the book, but of course it does nothing of the sort. We have other cases similar to this in the Bible. For example, at the very end of the book of Deuteronomy, there's an account of the death of Moses. Now, our Lord identified Moses as the author of the Pentateuch, including Deuteronomy, but presumably he didn't write about his own death. He could have, but there's no reason to think that he did. What you probably have there is an official addition to the end of the book of Deuteronomy by the elders in Israel testifying how that one who was the author of the book went to be with God. You have the same type of thing at the very end of the book of Romans. The 16th chapter, toward the end, you have a verse which is apparently the addition by Paul's amanuensis, that is the one who literally wrote the book down at Paul's dictation. His name was Tertius. He was probably the number three slave in the household. Paul is dictating all kinds of greetings, and then Tertius adds this verse, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Now, the very fact that Tertius added that, or the elders of Israel added an account of the death of Moses, does not mean that those portions are uninspired, and neither does that mean that these last two verses of the book of John are uninspired. He who inspired the author of the bulk of the book could also inspire the additions, and these, as the rest of Scripture, are profitable for our instruction, correction, and growth in righteousness, as Paul says in 2 Timothy. Now, to suggest that these verses were added by John's circle, by his church, by the elders, whoever it may have been, is not to say that they don't have a message for us. On the contrary, they do. And what these verses teach is that the foundations of Christianity, far from being some mere wishful thinking on the part of the early Christians or speculation on the part of some gifted authors or writers are actually founded upon the eyewitness testimony of those who lived with the Lord Jesus Christ and are authenticated by these witnesses. These verses say three things about this testimony. You find it all in verse 24. First of all, that the story of Christ's life was recorded for us as the result of eyewitness testimony itself. Now this is very important. This verse indicates that by identifying the author as the one who was with the Lord Jesus Christ here in Galilee and is described in the verses that come immediately before. Those who have never had the opportunity to study New Testament scholarship or the writings of the critical scholars in any detail are perhaps not aware of how reluctant many New Testament scholars are to admit that the writings of the New Testament, particularly the four Gospels, go back to the work of eyewitnesses. The writings 
bear such an obvious historical tone and are corroborated by non-biblical historical data to such a degree that it's obvious to many of these scholars that there's some kind of an historical base, and so they have difficulty knowing how to handle that. But there are scholars in the New Testament field who deny this historical base altogether, and some deny it radically. One example of this, an extreme example, is Rudolf Bultmann and his followers in this particular critical school in Germany. Bultmann says that what you have here in the New Testament is not in any sense the work of eyewitnesses, but rather that the New Testament, including its account of the life of Christ, is the product of the church itself, which speculated on the meaning of Christ, and then devised these stories to give expression to their understanding of the faith. Technically, what Bultmann says is that stories of Christ's ministry circulated in oral form during a developmental period in the early history of the church. These stories changed quite naturally. They were altered, sometimes even invented, in order to meet particular needs in the history of the church. And then sometime after the eyewitnesses had long passed from the scene and the stories had changed perhaps markedly in their detail, these things were written down. So Bultmann comes to the bottom line of this particular theory and says that we can know absolutely nothing historically about the historical Christ. All he says we can know is the fact that he existed. But then as his followers rightly ask, if that's the case, then why even that? And there's a movement back to find historical roots today. Now the author of these last verses was not writing particularly to Bultmann and his school, but under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they certainly spoke to this problem. Here they are saying that what we have in the early church is not the result of some speculation on the part of the early Christians, but is actually the result of eyewitnesses who saw these things and who wrote them down. Let me speak a bit more about this matter of eyewitnesses. John himself was one who was well aware of the need for eyewitnesses because if you turn to the opening verses of his first letter to the churches in Asia Minor, you recall that that's the way he begins that letter. He speaks of the senses and he says that what we're declaring to you is that which we have seen and which we have handled and which we have heard of the word of life indeed that which we have witnessed personally we declare to you now if you ask at that point why is it that john is concerned to emphasize this eyewitness testimony the answer is probably that he was writing toward the end of the apostolic period and therefore at a period in the history of the church when many of the eyewitnesses had passed from the scene. We think, by contrast, of what the Apostle Paul wrote in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. There Paul is writing about the resurrection, and he speaks of eyewitnesses of the resurrection, and he says, all of these witnessed the resurrection, and furthermore, Christ appeared to over 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain under the present time, although a few have died. Well, Paul isn't any, under any constraint there to stress the eyewitness testimony because there were so many eyewitnesses living at the time 
that anybody who had any integrity at all and was concerned about the question could simply investigate the eyewitnesses and could have a testimony for themselves. John, however, writing toward the end of the apostolic age, writes after most, if not all, of these eyewitnesses had died, and he writes to an unbelieving world, and so he is quite rightly concerned to stress this historical foundation. And John says in that first epistle, and those who authenticate his testimony here say, look, what we believe as Christians is based upon fact, not speculation. I think of another reason why John probably stressed this eyewitness testimony, and that is that at his particular period in the history of the church, there was a heretical movement known as Gnosticism that denied the need for an historical foundation. We have something like that in some forms of so-called Christianity in our own time. This is the idea that what is essential in religion is not facts but ideas. It's not what God did in Jesus Christ for our salvation. It's the truths about that, the nature of God, the nature of ourselves, the ethical life. And we're saved not by the acts of God, but by trying to do what we know we ought to do through the teaching of Christ. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's to deny the essence of Christianity. That might be of the essence of the non-Christian religions. They can do away with their founders. They can do away with the historical origins of the faith and perhaps live by ideas alone, but not Christianity. Christianity is wrapped up with facts entirely, and the big questions of Christianity are these. Is Jesus God? Did Jesus do what the scriptures declare that he did? Is salvation by his act upon the cross? Did he teach what he taught? And when you answer those questions, if you answer them in the affirmative, that Jesus is God, that he did do what he has declared to have done, then the facts are of the essence because it's a way of saying that salvation is of God and not of man. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, and he has given unto us this work of reconciliation. You see, Paul doesn't hesitate to say, and Christians have never hesitated to say, if Christ be not raised, then your faith is vain and you are yet in your sins. But if, on the other hand, Jesus died for our sin and rose again from the dead, then it's not arrogance to say, as he also does in the book of Acts, there is salvation in no other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You see, these are the points upon which this account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ ends. But now notice, there's one thing more. This verse 24 not only says that the things we have of Christ are the result of eyewitnesses, it not only says that the eyewitnesses actually wrote these things down, it also says in the last phrase that the testimony written down of these eyewitnesses is trustworthy. Well, you say, why is it necessary to add that? Well, for this reason. We can imagine a case, and here we speak speculatively, that a person lived during the time of our Lord, witnessed the things that he did and his miracles, 
and then wrote a gospel about him, but for whatever reason decided to falsify the evidence. Perhaps this was a person who really hated Christ, and therefore, although he witnessed the things that he did, he tried to minimize his good points, maximize or invent stories that would appear to his disadvantage. Some of the apocryphal writings do this. They attribute Christ's miracles to magic or perhaps even to the working out of a demonic power. On the other hand, there might have been somebody who thought so highly of Jesus Christ that he decided to embellish the account in Christ's favor. That is, he eliminated all the derogatory stories and he invented some that were much to his credit. We might be able to argue this way theoretically, but the author of this postscript or the authors of this postscript come to the end and say that that is not the case. That is not the way it was. This man, John, the son of Zebedee, the beloved disciple, who was an eyewitness of the events of Christ's life and who wrote these things down in the gospel which is now before us, the fourth gospel, was a man of absolute integrity. And what he wrote, he wrote down for our benefit. And they say that these things are true. We don't know how they were able to verify them, presumably by contact with other eyewitnesses, perhaps by personal interrogation. They could say, John, what you've said here seems to be in conflict to what you have there. And John would explain it, and they'd understand that there was no conflict at all. Whatever their method of verification they affirm here that that took place and that these things are true and that they're written for our benefit. Now, why were they written? Well, John himself has told us that a chapter earlier. John tells us that these things were written that we might believe and that believing we might have life in the name of Jesus Christ. You see, it's one thing to have eyewitness testimony. It's another thing to have that written down. It's a third thing to have it verified by a body such as this. But if it had nothing to do with us, we could take it or leave it. So what? What does it matter? Well, John himself tells us that these things do matter and that they were written that we might believe in Christ and that we might have life thereby. Let me point you to one thing that comes at the very end, and with this I'll close. When we read verse 25, which tells us that there are many things that Christ did, past tense, and that many of these are written down, though not all, we almost have the sense as we read that, that the life of Christ is now over. Why not? It's a story of his life. It has a beginning. It has an end. Now it's over. It's done. Nothing could be farther from the case. To begin with, when you enter upon the story of Christ's life in the beginning chapter of the gospel, you find that you're dealing with one who existed even before the beginning. That is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That means from eternity. This is the one with whom we have to do. And in a very parallel way, in a rounding off, and a satisfactory conclusion, as you come to the end, we must understand that this one who had no beginning also has no end, and therefore, while this accounting of his earthly life is done, there is a sense 
in which the life and the works of the Lord Jesus Christ go on. Certainly, that's the meaning of the last chapter, which we notice does not even have an account of the ascension of Christ to heaven, but rather portrays the disciples in fellowship with their Lord in a symbolic way, suggesting their activity in the present age. I notice something else, too. It's very, very interesting. You turn over the page of your Bible to the very next verse in the Bible the opening verse, and indeed the second verse of the Acts of the Apostles, you read there, the former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. Isn't that interesting? All the things that Jesus began to do. Why began? Because, in a certain sense, the earthly life of Christ was indeed just the beginning. And now, the life of Christ is intended to go on at work in his redeemed community. You remember that word of our Lord Jesus Christ that we have in John 14? In John 14, our Lord spoke to his disciples, and he said, Verily, verily, the works that I do ye shall do also, yea, and even greater works than these shalt thou do, because I go to my Father. This is the note on which we should end. Jesus did great things, but there is a sense in which now in his church even greater things are to be done as he works in the person of his Holy Spirit through those who are his people. I am the vine, ye are the branches. Without me ye can do nothing, but through me you will have fruit, much fruit, indeed fruit that will remain. That verse in John 14, Verily, verily, the works that I do ye shall do also, begins in that interesting way that our Lord so often began important sayings. Verily, verily, it means truly, truly. The word is literally amen, amen. Our Lord often began an important saying with those words because it was his way of saying, Look, this is true, this is true, pay attention. And then he said it. We also often say amen. We don't say amen at the beginning of our sayings. We're not certain that our sayings are true. We say amen at the end of Christ's sayings. He says amen, amen, and then he says something to us. And we listen and we say amen, by which we mean yes, that is true, and we stake our lives upon the truth of that statement. Have you noticed that that's the way the gospel ends? Amen? That's not Jesus' amen. His amen comes at the beginning. That's our amen. We've studied this gospel. We've seen what Christ has done. We've seen who he is. We've seen what he offers. We've studied his promises. Those are for us and for our children forever. We stand back and say, well, that's all very nice. It's a theory. I have nothing to do with it. That's not where Christianity tends. That's not the call that the Lord Jesus Christ puts before you. What he calls upon us to do is set our amen, our testimony to that truth, that testimony which has been recorded for us. These are the things that Jesus did. This is who Jesus is. These are the promises that Jesus makes. These are the gifts 
that Jesus offers. Let all the people say, Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this gospel and the way in which through these years it has been a blessing to our hearts. Grant that as we conclude this study now, your spirit might nevertheless continue the work that we have done in us and the living of our lives. And grant that we might go forth to carry on the work of Christ in this world, doing those works which he has promised that we will do. And grant that we might do them faithfully for his sake. Amen. You've been listening to Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.